Policymakers want information so that they can make a decision. They don't want the backstory. Sometimes they do. They don't really want the history behind something. But what they want is forward looking. How did you make this assessment and what's the impact to my organization or my agency? So I can make a decision. Um, so they're always looking forward. They're not looking backwards. Welcome back to the live drop. My guest is Michael Brady. He's a retired lieutenant colonel, career intelligence professional. He's performed a wide range of intelligence functions from long range surveillance, interrogation analysis, and collection management. He teaches intelligence studies at the Citadel, both graduate and postgraduate. He's a former contributor to the Asia Times and also is the author of a series of interesting spy novels about a character named Michael Brennan, who's a NOC, a non official cover CIA officer. I'll talk to him about his writing and his intelligence experience in the South Pacific. You can find his work at michaelbradybooks.com. Also, if you've been enjoying the Live Drop, you can find us at livedrop.com. You can review us on iTunes and find us on Twitter and Instagram. Begin transmission now. You're wearing your uh, lieutenant colonel uniform? Yeah. Well, what they do is, um, you know, if you, if you served in the military and you're retired, if you're a professor on campus, you get to wear a uniform. Now, if you were to see me next to somebody who is purely an academic professor, right. they would have the same uniform, but they would have some letters, which you can't really sound even see it, but they would have letters on this side that say SCUM, and that's really the designator. So, yeah, this is basically my old uniform for when I retired many moons ago. So you, they don't let you wear any medals or anything like that, not that you would want they, to? Yeah, they, I'm allowed to. I just, I just don't usually put all that stuff on. So, I mean, I... Uh, I've noticed, uh, I've noticed you're a little bit um, – I've noticed your, your biography for you know, someone who has been in the, in the military. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a little mysterious. Career intelligence, yeah. <laughs> career intelligence yeah. officer, there's no like, you know, you, sir, head, headquarters, 760. You know, there's no like list of units that you worked for or anything like that. Is that intentional? Yeah. No, no, it's not by design. It's just the way it is. So it's uh... – um, you know, basically, you know, I, I just, you know, it's just really what I've done, you know, in terms of the types of intel that I've done or that I've at least been exposed to. Um, right. And so that's, that's not by design or anything. So, <laughs> no, no, but it does, it does intrigue people. I, I was stationed, I tell this to people all the time, is I was stationed in Berlin. Um, and people would say, Wait, uh, Pardon me? You were stationed in Berlin? Yes. Yeah. Here's my, yeah, here's, here, here's my live drop. <laughs> kit bag I, I, the whole podcast is in this bag right here that is awesome when were, when were you there well i was there in let's see i went to germany and i graduated west point 87 ended up in germany yeah. in 88 and i was an engineer but i was assigned to um i had an early reassignment to berlin brigade like in april of 89 so i got there when yeah I, I got there okay when, wow wow so we just happening. missed each other because i graduated in 90 and i went over to darmstadt Okay. Yeah, I left when I when I graduated um, from the Citadel. I actually graduated from here, and so I spent three years in Germany. And the first, uh, I guess, the first couple of years were in Darmstadt. I was with uh, Echo Fifty First Long Range Surveillance, so I did some LERS. Okay. Uh, was with uh, one of the, one of the MI battalions where I was an interrogation platoon leader. So we just missed each other. <laughs> you just missed it. Yeah, you were right across the river from me, actually. Yeah, over we were. We were across the river at all. My initial assignment was in Oppenheimer. Dexheimer was an engineer battalion. It was right across from, um, just south of Mainz, but 
Yeah, wow, that's awesome. How long? How long in service for? I remember. I remember reading about that or hearing about that somewhere. But how long I, were you in for? I did for five. I did five years. I did my five, and then wow. so I went to. Yeah, I was in Berlin, and the wall came down, and then I went to the Gulf War for three, four months, and then I came back and finished up my time working for Department of Engineering and Housing. And um, yeah, started. It's okay. Started. <laughs> somebody's got to renovate those buildings. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some, Nobody's better than an engineer. Listen, I, got, I finished out as an interior designer for the United States Army, but you know. Yeah. Well, was, what have you been doing since then? Broadly speaking, have you been in the? Uh, the what have you been Broadly doing? speaking, I've been I've been an entertainment professional for the past twenty. What's that? I've been an entertainment professional for the past twenty twenty five years. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Sounds like you're. Sounds like you're crushing it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> My first job, my first job was was with uh, a movie called The Innocent, which was oh, wow. which was a fictionalized account by um, who was the writer? I forget his name, English writer, but it was about the Operation Gold, where the Americans dug under in the fifties, dug under the tunnel to tap into the Soviet yeah, phone lines. Right. Yeah, that's what I dedicated book uh, the book to the assassination court. The dedication is to Operation Gold. Is it really? The, is Absolutely. It, I get it. Which it's book? Absolutely. Which book? You know, because we've got two protagonists, you know, one from British uh, SIS and one from CIA, and that was uh, Operation Gold was a joint op uh, between CIA and, and the Brits. So, yes, that's amazing that you mentioned that because it, it, the dedication in book two, it's written right there. Who's, who's, who's the one that threw – book two, the assassination? Yeah, book two. Oh, the yeah, one, with, two. Oh, the one oh, with Dear yeah. Love. The one with Dear Love. Yeah, John Dear Love, yeah. Oh right, yeah. I enjoyed that. Oh yeah, amazing. That was amazing. And then to think that I mean, because it was funny, because you know, as you do, if you do films or movies, like sometimes I'll walk around Los Angeles. Like I moved recently, moved to Eagle Rock. It's a part of LA that I hadn't really been to before. But I, I was driving through, and I thought, where do I remember this? Play? And then it hit me. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. I played. A, I did a TV pilot where I played a private eye who lived in this part of town and I'd sort of forgotten about it, but it had, it sort of mixed into this memory. Like, did it really happen to me or right. was it just like a memory kind of thing? I, I'm going to have, a, I'm going to have a much more interesting like dementia than I, I think reality. No, 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 no. It sounds like you're, you, you got a hell of a ride going over there in, in California. So I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear about that someday. It's fun. Beer. Yeah. But back to operation gold is I, is they have a section of the tunnel. Well, I think they're, they're putting a section of it in the, um, the, the new, uh, National Spy Museum in Washington as well. But they have a section because they found sections of the actual tunnel that they were using for training in East Germany off in the forest. Yeah. Side, and they mm -hmm. actually brought it back. It's this 10 wild, I don't know, maybe maybe four or five meter wide corrugated tin tube. Right? It looks like it's used for drainage. But they had that tube in uh, the museum in Berlin. I don't know if you've ever been to the, um, what is that museum? The Allied Museum. They have a no. They have a replica of it there. And I thought, God, where have I been? I was like, yeah, that's right. I did a movie. I was inside this tunnel the whole, the whole time. So I was never that's actually true. in the operation, but I feel like I was part of it. Have you, have you been? Have you been in, in in many movies or TV shows? Have you been? Have you had a chance to get a cast in a lot of them over, over time? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had a pretty active career. I was. Um, I guess probably you might know me from Boston Legal. I played a lawyer on that show for about three years. I. You know, I thought you looked familiar. I thought so. Did you? Were you? Were you one of the major guys on that show? Or did I was you have main, a I was main character. Yeah, you but, were the main character. One of the main characters. Yeah, I was. A that is unbelievable. You know, I thought when when face <laughs> popped up, I'm like, you know, I know this dude from somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did oh. that. Um, I guess movies. You know, I did a lot of television pilots. I mean, if you look at my IMDb thing and say, oh yeah, I know, I know this, or I know that. I think most recent film was probably. 
that you might have seen was Zero Dark Thirty. Yes, yeah. You, uh, what? How did you participate in Zero Dark Thirty? Well, initially, I was I did two roles actually. I was um, they had this whole sequence set up for these uh, Night Stalker pilots, right? So I did all this research, you know, to play this yeah. warrant officer who's you know flying by the seat of his pants through Pakistan at night, you know, and uh, yeah. you know, talked to some friends who'd been in that unit and so forth. And then I got there and they said, no, uh, we got a diff- I shot one or two of those scenes where you've because they just see me flying the helicopter. And then they said, no, we have another scene for you. Um, you're going to be an Air Force pilot of a C-130 pilot. Oh, <laughs> so I saluted. I'm like, yes, I'm yes, sorry. ma'am, I can do that. Yeah. You know? So you I, know, got, I got onto YouTube. I got onto YouTube and I studied the flight um, procedures for how to take off, you know, because that was yeah. part of the... Well, that is amazing. The fact that you were part of Zero Dark Thirty. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, some of the movies that I really enjoy... If you look at the movies from an intel perspective, you can just sit back and go, okay, I'm going to look at this, I'm going to analyze this, uh, not for the action or the adventure, but for the intel piece. Zero Dark Thirty, you know, is one of them. I mean, basically the first, you know, 90% of the movie is really just the techniques, tactics, and procedures that we use to try to hunt Osama bin Laden, you know? And um, so I always tell other people that, you know, another one that I like is Body of Lies, but Zero Dark Thirty, I, th- I thought it was well done. I thought, I thought the, the producers and the writers, I mean, I really, I, I thought that was well done. It's been a couple of years since I've seen it, but boy, did they do a pretty good job of showing how the intel community works to collect data and, and, and the challenges that they have and some of the ethical, you know, considerations. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. with Star and doing a lot of things, you know, I mean, how, how did you get into... This podcast, this this. How did you get involved in the interest in the intel intel world? Um, well, it's funny. I was uh, well, another movie I did was the Siege with Denzel Washington. Where Are you what? You were in the Siege? Yeah, I was the FBI agent. I got blown up on page seventy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind I of a sore. I have to go back and watch the Siege now. It's kind of a sore note for me, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. it was funny. I, I was wow. I played an Air Force. I played an FBI agent, and um, you know, I just felt like. You know, they were really sort of caught off guard. They were kind of caught off guard in 9-11, but I think in also this movie I tried to represent that we just weren't yeah. really expecting to have that kind of activity going on in American soil, you know. But um, how did I get into it? Well, you know, what I, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Tell me, tell me what you're going to say. Oh, no. No, what I was going to say is I didn't want to cut you off, but I was like, hey, look, you know, what we can do is we can take our books, make you, okay, Michael Brennan, and we'll go ahead and get a franchise started. What do you think? Yeah, I like your pitch. I like your pitch. <laughs> we're, we're 10 minutes into the conversation and we're making the Michael Brennan series. Yeah, let's do it. I'm all for it. Let's get some people. Let's take, get some... It, take it off. Get, get it going, man. Let's get, let's get Michael let's Brennan. Let's get your Cit- Citadel people yeah, on. Yeah. No, I got into it. It's funny you ask. I got into I was thinking about the other day. I was like, what, what's the deal? I mean, I was re- I never was much of a reader when I was a kid. Um, I, I think yeah. I read like some Robert Ludlum novels, you know, and mm-hmm, sure. you know, maybe Mac Bolan or something like that, you know. Um, I like. I think yours are much more realistic, to be honest with you. But, I don't um, know about that. <laughs> I thought, uh, I, I remember the first time I was, like I grew up on the Canadian border and I, I heard people speaking French in Quebec and the radio and TV and I wanted to know what they were talking about. So from seventh grade on, I was studying French in school just because I wanted to learn it. Um, I got to Germany. I started speaking some, I started trying to learn German, ended up working as a translator in some instances, but you know, I'm still an engineer, but I, I think my first time was I did this thing called the Nijmegen March in Holland where they take off. Oh my God. Do you know that? I am fully aware of Nijmegen. Did yes, you sir. Did you see the Nijmegen March? 
Yeah. I didn't do it, but some of my soldiers, when I was in the interrogation platoon, we had we had some of the soldiers do it. I can't remember why I didn't do it, but yes, I'm familiar with the nine man. Okay, so the nineteen I, I was I was gung ho because that was six months. All you did is train is train a team to right. march. And I said, You yeah. know what, goddammit, I'm gonna take my I'm gonna I'm gonna So Absolutely. I ended up going I ended up training my team from the twelfth engineers to we we represented eighth ID. So I took my team up there and that year was kind of the year of perestroika, I, I think was just sort of starting and um the Russians sent a team, right? So oh the Soviets I guess they were at the time. Yeah, back <laughs> then. So, so you know, we would uh, you know, we would get there a couple of days early and everybody could kind of find their billets, but we all ate in these large tents. You know, we kind of table to table, but they encouraged a lot of interaction between the other units because there were units from obviously, as you know, like all the you know, NATO was there. I mean, there was everybody from, yeah. you know, Italians to, um, you know, French and Norwegians and Finnish and all kinds of things. So I, um, I was just, I just want to talk to these Russians. <laughs> so, you know, when things would kind of mellow out or we'd be in line, I'd sort of find myself in line talking to one of the Russian soldiers, you know, like, you know, yeah. I, I knew just enough to get started a conversation. I didn't really know any Russian I'd be like, you know, Dobre. You know, Dobry, Dobry Vechik, like the or something like that. You know, and, be like, blah, blah, blah. and they wouldn't go anywhere. And then, and then I found out that they wanted to talk to me, right? So we would have to have this little. I, I would kind of like. There's another station where you could go to get coffee outside. You know, after the marches during the day. So I would yeah. go and meet there, and one would be outside. And there was a lot of soldiers around, so we would kind of get together and talk. But one could speak. They brought over one guy who could speak French. You know, and um. Um, I could talk to him a little bit, and they found another guy who could speak German, right? So I yeah. to, so I, party going on. I'm just curious, right? I'm not working for any intelligence units, but apparently I'm like casing the Russian team, right? And right. Uh, um, so I'm just getting at like what it's like for them, where they drafted, how long were they in, where were most of them from, and you know, just kind of order of battle stuff. You know what I mean? And you were uh, doing movement. You were you were you were an operative. I'm doing your job. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like an engineer. Like I, I just blow things up. That's all I do yeah. for a living. You know. Yeah, not and mine. Not mine. <laughs> I think by the last day, where we had a fun little group, we would kind of hang out and meet. And um, the last day, they they weren't there and they couldn't show up. And they said, "Why? Why? Why aren't you guys there?" And they said, "Um, listen, just we just want to." Uh, one of the guys just kind of mentioned to me in passing. He said, "Um, they 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 think you're CIA. We can't talk to you anymore." <laughs> <laughs> I said, CIA, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a second lieutenant. I don't have any responsibility. They wouldn't trust me with anything, you know? Right. I think for like about 48 hours, I kind of felt, and the rest of the Russians, of course, the Russian officers, we passed them at one point, and I, and I had their leader like an American flag, and their team all knew me, right? So they're kind of like, hey, what's up, what's up? And they're you know, platoon commander was looking at me like, who the heck is this person? You know, so I got, yeah. a, little, I got a little bit of flavor, how fun that it would be to be somebody like Michael Brennan. I think yeah, that kind of, I think yeah, they kind of stuck around. It's always been a disappointment when I tell people I worked as a, as a, as an engineer, but they, but they rarely believe me, which is kind of fun as well. You know, I say, no, I'm serious. Yeah. I was just an engineer. They're like you're just an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. People, people are like, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You were. Yeah, that's right. But that's I was, right. but I've always been interested in it. And of course, living in Berlin and stuff, and, and finding out after the wall had come down, you know, the extent to which, um, you know, I mean, the Stasi, how much they were involved in, in things that were going on, even yeah. in the American sector, it really opened my eyes. Um, you know, even friends that I, people that I knew, were 
you know, for working for in, in some capacity for the intelligence community. So I thought, oh, yeah, lying liars. Well, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a amazing industry. I mean, I would tell you, you know, I, I always tell my students, whether the undergrads or the ones getting a master's degree in our grad program, I mean, it, it it is a it is an eight hundred pound gorilla, um, you know, and it is huge. It is big. There's a lot of compartmentalization going on, and so there, you know, the more you learn about the intel community, you know, whether whether you you know you've been an intel officer or when you're a professor or you're you're doing some writing and research like me, you, there's always things you learn. And you're like, well, wait a second, I didn't know that. You know, I never heard that before, and uh, it's just a really interesting um, industry to 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 be talking about to be learning about uh, because so much of it goes on you know in the shadows mm-hmm. and that's that's it's kind of a it brings out the detective in us you know the curiosity you know i always tell people you know if you're interested in intel you just because you're intellectually curious you want to know and Absolutely, sometimes yeah. does sometimes the intel community does things to us where they don't want us to know you know <laughs> and uh, but that's that's all part of the journey so yeah, it's very it's fun. I used to have one of my episodes. I had this alarm going off where if, whenever I crossed the line into like when somebody says, "I'm sorry, that's that's sources and methods" or something like that, like an yeah, alarm, yeah, an alarm yeah. would go off when you yeah. like when you hit the hand when you hit hit the hand. You know, I'm, that's what yeah, it's one of those things like yeah, you know, or, or or it could have been, it could have been, you know, maybe one of your guests saying, "I just don't want to answer that question." So I'm going to say, right, right. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I can't hear what you said. So I yeah, guess- it's, and that's interesting because you know that's one of the things you know. I, I, I think uh, it was there was an interview I did last year when, the, when my first book came out, and I think one of the guys was talking to me about that stuff, and I was like, look, you know, I mean, I try very hard. You know, it's hard because when you when you've done intel work, and I'm not suggesting that I know everything about the intel community. I mean, you know, very few people actually do know. Um, but you know, when you start before you start putting things or ideas on paper, you want to make sure that you're not putting something on paper that is really classified or that is still classified. So that's so this the way, one of the ways I've overcome it is I'll just look around, you know, on Google or I'll look around on different um, you know, sources, whether that be, you know, some of the major media outlets or think tanks and government agencies and say, okay, is this type of capability out in the open, you know, you know is it available for public consumption? And that's what I've been able to do. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting, an interesting field to be in. So I was talking and, to, I was talking to um, General uh, Hate Mike Hayden. Yeah, General Hayden. I was, I was yeah, yeah, race... I, I really like General Hayden. Did you guys have? You guys had a good chat. We had a nice chat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, he was a little bit above my pay grade as far as as far as an interviewer for the intelligence community, yeah, but no, um, no. It, it was really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he did, he did, I did look up something about him is he's really been a proponent of transparency and trying to get as much of the story of what the intelligence community is doing out into the open. So you don't end up with this distrust that someone like our president has right now. But he said, but so he made, he actually implemented some procedures where things like, you know, books or white paper, where they could be, um, well, they could be cleared a little bit faster, but did you have to go through mm-hmm. any of that process with, with fiction to people? Do you have, still have to get them cleared in some way or no? No, I haven't had to clear anything with anybody. Um, you know, I, I, it's my understanding that if you have been a career uh, CIA employee, then you do have to have somebody looking at it to make sure that you're not disclosing anything. But in my case, no, I was not a CIA officer. Um, and so I, I didn't have to go through that process. But it's interesting that, that you and General Hayden had that discussion. Um, because one of the concerns I always had when I was, a when I was an Intel officer many moons ago, and I still do now is there's just too much stuff that's classified. You know, you'll sit around. I mean, 
it, it will blow your mind if you look at some of the reports that we have and some of the products that we have. And, and you say to yourself, how the hell is this top secret? I mean, how, how is this top secret? How is this secret? And I think one of the problems that we have as an intelligence community is that we just classify everything. You know, I mean, right. there's too much stuff that's being classified. I mean, I could take you into the Pentagon. I could take you into the Undersecretary of Defense. We could walk the halls of Langley. And uh, sure, there are some sources and methods that we would certainly not have access to. But even if you read some assessments, um, some analytical reports, you'd ask yourself, well, how in the hell did this get to be top secret? And that's one of the main problems. So I'm glad that you and General Hayden were able to discuss that um, because there needs to be more transparency to the public. I mean, it definitely has to be more transparency. And I, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of giving the public a blank check where we, where we disclose everything. We say, hey, here you go. Um, but I think the vast majority of intelligence products and even some of the technology um, can be declassified um, so the public consumption can be greater. And so I'm glad that uh, General Hayden mentioned that because that's something that, I mean, he, ha he certainly has the leadership and the connections and the vision to make that happen. It's just now all of those those agencies that are that reside within the IC that, that have to make that change and implement it. So, yeah, you want to get your manuscript back with just these black lines, just kind of beep, yeah, beep, beep. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I, I haven't had to do that now. Nobody has told me that I've had to do that. So, but again, I'm very careful too. I mean, I, I uh, if I'm going to write about an XP47, you know, if I'm going to write about you know a drone or something like that, I'm going to check the official you know, Air Force, you know, Times report and what they disclosed to the public. I was, I was interested. You did mention those mini drones with special, with special operations. I was like, oh, that sounds kind of new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, mini drones are the future. I mean, look, you know, a lot of people are not aware. We got mini satellites. I mean, there's, there's, there's micro satellites out there right now, too, uh, what we call low Earth orbit. And so, you know, these drones that we're building and, and starting to slowly uh, deploy throughout the the military and through some of the uh, the intel agencies are phenomenal. I mean, the power of the optics of this and some of the acoustic sensors that they have um, is really being used by our special operations forces. They're being used by some of our ground components for deployed and certainly by men and women within the IC. Um, you know, just the power of having a drone that is, you know, the size of a baseball or, you know, there's some drones now that are literally the size of a fly. Um, and if you can put those, um, those types of sensors, you know, in remote and denied areas, why, why take a risk and continue to put people um, in harm's way or large platforms that are easily discoverable? So God, I was reading something about swarm. I, mean, I was reading something about swarm technology or like this, yeah. this concept of swarm technology where they would work really good in, in these remote regions. So yeah, swarm drone. We're talking about, yeah, the, yeah, the swarm drone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the swarm drone technology. And the problem with that, though, is, too, you also got to figure out how to protect yourself from it. You know, so, you know, you can, you know, these the swarm, just like this, this concept of swarm missiles, you know, that we're very concerned about in places like, you know, the East China Sea and the South China Sea. Well, they're they're um, building their own intelligence and making their own decisions within its own system. Close absolutely. System. And, and, and then implementing artificial intelligence with it. You're right. Absolutely. It's a, it's a significant... Um, challenge uh to get all that stuff to work but yeah the swarm drones uh mini drones micro drones whatever terminology we want to use they're the future they're coming coming quick and but, also, but also in your book i noticed there's just some some i don't know if it's just you know maybe a, maybe a literary device or whatever but you know you have 
you have Michael Brennan. He's, you know, he's in Chinese and and then he picks up his cell phone and he calls, he calls Doug Weatherby at the CIA. And I'm just thinking, wait, how we've got many drones buzzing around. How can somebody just call? So, I mean, they have layers and layers of technology. What's that? What's that? Go ahead. Sometimes I can't hear it because of the echo in here. Go ahead. Oh, I was just wondering. I mean, are there are there layers of tech? I mean, there are layers of technology that cover even some you know sort of pedantic things like a cell phone call or a phone call or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, when you when you're talking about a cell phone, we all know, okay, that we have high frequency cell phones. You know, other than that, I'm not going to get into it. But you know, the the, the concept with with some of uh, of Michael Brennan, what he's doing is he's using using technology. And so, right. if you're going to communicate with a low earth orbit satellite that may have a secure frequency that just CIA or some folks in the Intel community, which I think we know exists. We know that they have dedicated communications channels. Mm-hmm. We'll get into any more detail than that. But, you know, so I, I you know, I, I draw that and I say, well, wait a second, you know, can, does the technology today that we have, would it allow somebody to really literally pull out their cell phone and connect securely with a low earth orbit satellite on a dedicated frequency? And I believe the answer is yes. So that's why I did that with Michael Brennan a couple of times. Um, so I can't look you in the eye and tell you definitively that that <laughs> is done or can be sure. done. But yeah. um, we have some fun. But it, it's, it's the technology is, 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 is there. We know that from the civilian commercial application. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the reasons I did get into I did get into doing this podcast is I thought God, there's just I mean right now there's just so it's a time when there's so much. Not only is there a lot on TV, but there's just a lot in the world going on. There's a lot of information for people to have to process and make sense of. And even some of the smartest kids out of Harvard is something like, have you, have you watched that Frontline thing about Facebook? Yes. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, there's yes. this immense amount of information. They had no idea what it was going to what it was going to enable or how to control it or how to process it or make sense of it. So you have on one hand, you know, someone like General Hayden says, you know, I think we need a little bit more transparency, but then... On the other, you know, we're giving away free inf- we're giving away our information for, for to to Silicon Valley for free stuff, right? And that we're showing now is having consequences. So how do you, how do you kind of how do you rectify that with like almost too much information being available from other sources? Well, I mean, the way you rectify that is you've got to build a, a cloud. You have to you have to get into cloud computing. You have to be able to know how to manage your your information. You know. I mean, the intelligence community has trillions of bits of data that it collects yearly. I mean, we can even get further down the road than that. But, I mean, to me, you have to establish partnerships with Silicon Valley. And we actually do have partnerships with Silicon Valley. Because when we provide contracts to uh, small and medium-sized companies there to help build things for us, whether that be cloud computing, some of our sensors that we use, mostly the software, you know, we gain from that. So, yeah, they're going to get some of the information for free. But we have to have them. We have to rely on them. They're the innovators. They're the next generation of technology. And so in, in order for us to have access to that, we've got to be able to willing to give up some things um, so that that partnership remains intact and goes forward smoothly. Um, and so hopefully that's a question there. So. I guess what I was listening to, um, I think I was listening to the Cypher Brief or something like that. And they were talking about how um, – I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's like a, I can't remember the name of it, but there is an organization that works in conjunction with Silicon Valley and some of their developers from like a government standpoint. And um, NSA. What's NSA. That? It's, NSA. It's the NSA. 
and mm-hmm. I, th- I think CIA had one as well. I'm not really sure, but they had one. They had one that was working with them as well. But I'm just wondering what what does the government have to offer? I mean, what they? It seems like these companies are like, sure, you know, we'll, we'll help you. But what, what is their what is their leverage? It, it, money. I mean, I mean, that's it. It's just money. I mean, a lot of times when we're, well, you know, I mean, General Hayden can obviously speak to this with much greater detail than I can. Um, but what we have to offer, obviously, is money. Those contracts, you know. Um, but you know, what, what, from what I understand, because I don't have any personal experience having worked with Silicon Valley directly. Um, but I think what we do is we go to Silicon Valley and we just, we just, we just say, look, we need you. You know, whether it's loyalty to the government, whether it's loyalty to the American people, we need you. But I think really ultimately what we end up having is we have money and of course we have laws. I mean, we can change laws. We can change surveillance laws if we choose to. Um, we can compel some of these, these corporations to do the things that we need. I mean, you got to look at some of the things that we, we saw in the mid 2000s with, uh, AT&T, you know, and access, you know, to domestic, you know, surveillance programs. So I think it's a give and take, but, but ultimately I think it's money and, and, and then partnership has to go forward. Um, but we need them. We need them now more than ever. I mean, I don't, I, I assume General Hayden uh, believes the same thing. They, you know, we need them more than, than, than they need us, um, without a doubt. Um, and so that's, that's the best way I can answer that. So let's dig into your writing process a little bit. I mean, did you start writing while you were still in the service? And, and, and is that legal? <laughs> in some ways, aren't you? Aren't, well, is it, is, is it, are any it chapters is, property of the United States Army is basically what I'm, what I'm asking. No, sir. No. no. Uh, actually, you are allowed to write while you're while you're in the army or while you're on active duty. I mean, it, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, it was a different. You know, my journey started a couple years ago. So I was actually teaching a graduate class um, about two and a half years ago now, and I and I basically we were talking about some of the threats, and we were focused on Islamic State, and we had just done a discussion on EIDs, which is emerging infectious diseases. And I said, well, wait a second, could you imagine? if the Islamic state was able to weaponize Ebola, whatever that, whatever that looks like. And that was the impetus for the book. So I actually wrote the book two summers ago. Um, you know, I found the publisher, but you know, I, I didn't start writing, you know, before I retired or while I was, while I was still in the service. I mean, I retired in 2010. And so, you know, I retired because I got what's called a compassionate reassignment. Um, you know, I lost my wife to breast cancer many years ago. I'm sorry about that. The army, the army really took care of me and said, okay, well, what, what, what can we do? And I said, well, you know, why don't you go ahead and send me to Citadel if you can, and, and I'll finish out my time there. But, but I didn't start writing until just a couple of years ago, and it's, it seems like it's really unleashed, unleashed, you know, the creativity in me because I've been cranking out about a book a year, um, and, I'm, and I'm actually moving towards longer books now. And so – um, but no, it just started a couple of years ago, and um, I think I just, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly what you just said a few minutes ago. The world is so complex, it's dangerous, there's lots of stuff going on that we have to keep our eyes on, and you just have to look around and be be aware of what's going on. Those drive the plots. I mean, it, it's almost, you know, I take a lot of what's, if you look at my first two books, it, it's nothing unusual. We know what's happening out there. We knew a couple of years ago Islamic State was a significant national security issue. We know that they were trying to obtain chemical and or biological weapons. Very rudimentary. It was not an advanced program, but they were trying. And so as a fiction writer now and as a professor here at the Citadel, 
you know, I just look around the world and I say, this is a problem that I think is interesting. And um, so that, that's what motivates me to, to, to write. Um, you know, I try to write almost every day when I can, but I also try to keep up with all the different events going on in the world. Um, and particularly focused on, on Asia now, particularly in the South China Sea, is where I'm putting a little bit more emphasis on, on that for my writing. Because I want to focus in the future more on Asia-Pacific issues. Uh, rather than say Russian or, or or terrorism, so was that a specialty that you had? I wouldn't call it a specialty. I'd, I call it more of an interest. You know, it's my it's my interest. You know, I mean, I wrote a I wrote a classified thesis. Um, boy, boy, when was that? About two thousand one, two thousand two, on, on you know, involving China and Taiwan. But I just think you know, as we as we go forward, Mark, you know. I would say China is really the, 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 the near pure competitor, which is what we're starting to hear from our senior leadership, both in Washington and within the military. And um, sure, Russia is a player. It's a major global player. They've got nuclear war- weapons. But when you look at what makes a great power or what makes a great superpower, you know, the Chinese fits that bill. They've got the economy. They've got the infrastructure. And um, – they're clearly trying to become a global power. So in my mind, they're our competitor for the next hundred years, you know, whether that be just the Pacific or whether it be for influence in Africa. Um, we know that they have a base in Africa already. They're building carriers. They're building a sizable naval fleet um, for them to push out and become what we call a blue water Navy, as you and your listeners are, are probably familiar with. Um, but China is it. I mean, they're the player. And, um, you know, I think I think we're just a couple decades away from them having parity um, in terms of military and economic and political influence around the globe. I mean, it's not now. It's not imminent. Um, but 10, 20 years from now, um, the world's going to look a little bit different. And it's going to be a little bit more Chinese than, than some people may or may not want. So. so how would you compare? I mean, one of the things I know we do want to talk about China, um, one of the the things about this this new interview thing is that it's gonna we're gonna wrap up in about five minutes. So I would love to be able to speak with you again in the future. Um, I'd love to. I'd be Mark. I'd be honored to. I can do this anytime. I love talking about these types of types of issues with uh, with smart people like you and your viewers. I mean, I, I could do this whenever you want. Cool. So. so let's plan on doing it again at some point and kind of digging into China because I agree as well. There's some of the stuff that I, I was in Africa this summer and um, I, I was in, I was in Kenya. I mean, I think I'd been there maybe ten years prior, and to see how much, to see to see the level of of Chinese involvement at that point, they were inv- they were investing ten years ago, and now they're collecting interest off off of their off of their loans, and uh, you know yeah. they seem to be fairly well entrenched. But I'm just I'll, just reading about the Navy and the way they're investing in some of these major port cities, just real estate in port cities. It's yeah, like, uh, in, yeah, high island. I mean, they're they're, they're, they're building they're they're expanding their naval bases in southern china you know so you, you know you look at something like a hainan island you look at um what i wouldn't really call as bases but i would look at forward outposts you know in the south china sea particularly like woody island uh the spratleys where they're starting to deploy um, military forces but then you have to look at what they're doing in the indian ocean you know they're starting to build some facilities that in 5 10 15 20 years can conduct things like refueling operations for their blue water navy which they anticipate having so the chinese are clearly investing heavily they've learned a lot from the united states um you know we we we've, we've had um 
you know, we've, we've had a large, robust Navy since World War II. And we've been able to, to pretty much do what we want to do uh, from a naval perspective around the globe. And the Chinese have sat back and they've learned from us. And they've said, okay, well, if we want to be a global power, if we want to have reach, if we want to be able to do things in Africa quickly, or if we want to do things in the Caribbean, because they are heavy investors in the Caribbean right now, believe it or not, um, they know they have to build a Navy. And so, matter of fact, what, what, what you may not have heard recently is that the Chinese now have a larger Navy than we do. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a whole lot because qualitatively, we are still vastly superior to them in, in the Pacific. But they're, 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 you know, they're ramping out you know, just ship after ship after ship after ship. They're also expanding to five aircraft carriers, which will allow them to have influence in places like the South China Sea, East China Sea, the Indian Ocean. And, and believe it or not, in the Caribbean. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Jacksonville, Florida, and just a couple of years ago, there was a Chinese vessel in, in Jacksonville, kind of a mill-to-mill relationship um, that was there. And so they recognize that in order to be a global power, they got to put their money in the Navy, and that's exactly what they've been doing. If you look at the, the Army, the Army is shrinking. Uh, President Xi has, has cut the size of the Army. He's cut the number of, of weapon systems that they have. The Air Force is being cut. It's all going into the Navy um, because – you know, it's, it's, he has a vision for how things are going to look like in 20 years. And in order to get there, he's got to have a strong Navy. So. Well, that's fascinating. They don't have this. I don't think they have uh, can be compared to the Russians. They don't have this narrative of being this underdog that has to, you know, kind of fight against all these, these oppressors. They, they are, they have a plan. They have a 20, like you said, they have a 25 year plan, 25 year plan. And I don't think yeah. we're, I think that's we're not really used to seeing to seeing this. No, you know, and, and, and as a matter of fact, Mark, you know, what's interesting is if you look at the Chinese, you know, I tell students this all the time. The difference between us and the Chinese are vast. We won't have to get into all the differences, but they look at things in hundred year increments, one hundred year increments. We look at things at the next election cycle, and so. Right. But if you what President Xi just did at his National uh, Party Congress. He outlined a plan on what he wants China to be like by the year 2050. 2050. That, that, that's just for simplicity. Let's call it 25 years. And so you're right. I mean, you know, they, they have a plan and they're going to get there incrementally. And that's, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the reasons why China has grown so quickly. I mean, when you look at China when it introduced its economic modernization programs in the 70s, I mean, that was just 40 years ago, you know, 40, 50 yeah. years ago. And look where they are now. And, um, you know, if we don't start getting this right, and if we don't start looking um, at the Pacific and the Asia-Pacific theater um, more smartly, um, they're going to beat us there in the Pacific, and uh, they're going to start to, you know, gain more influence in places like Europe, Middle East, and, and in Africa. So. Let's send Michael Brennan in. But what yeah, are Michael, what, what are they? We, we got to send Michael Brennan, but you know we got to get you to be Michael Brennan. We got to be Michael. That's how we're going to fight the Chinese. Yeah. That, you know, let's let, yeah, that's that's exactly we're right. You make, know? make Michael Brennan movies. You know, yeah, I mean, like, you know, and then that's one of the things I try to do with book two was you know show how realistic. You know, the challenge of getting somebody in and, and operating in, in China is difficult. It really Absolutely, is. Yeah, I know we don't have the time for that. Um, but that's kind of what we're going to look at going forward, you know, the, this, 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 just Asia, China, because, you know, 60% of the world's economics comes from there. I mean, that's the place to be. It's not in, you know, it's not worried about Russia so much, even though they're trying to build. Mm-hmm. 
about the Pacific, Mark. And we got to we got to we got to get Michael Brennan over there. I got to work on my Chinese too. Shay <laughs> <laughs> Shay. And, and we, we got to yeah yeah we got to work with them too. I mean ultimately you know the problem is this: we've been able to dictate policy in the Asia Pacific region for sixty years. Right. That will never be the case in twenty years from now. I'm not one of these doom, doomsday people. Oh, the world is falling apart. U.S. is falling apart. We're still going to be a significant global uh, leader in 40, 50 years from now. But whereas before we could make decisions and, and, and just consider the impact to us as a nation and our people and some of our allies, we now have to say, well, wait a second, what's the impact of the Chinese? Because we really have to worry about what they're going to do and what their influence is. And it's a much different dynamic going forward than it has been before. We have to be much more cautious about how we approach international affairs now with the Chinese being a major player. It's just the reality. It's not giving up. It's just the reality. Well, this has been enjoyable talking about the reality, <laughs> talking about the reality with fiction writer, Michael, yeah. Michael, Michael Brady. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask you, I was going to, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Michael Brennan, but I kind of, I feel like I've sort of met someone who's similar to him in some, in some ways. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, Michael Brennan is Michael Brennan, and so you know. Is Michael I mean, Brennan teaching at the Citadel? Hey, no, got me. He could be. You know, Michael Brennan yeah. could be teaching at the Citadel at some point. He could be. Yeah, he could be. I don't know. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get him to be a professor in one of these books down the road. It'd be like a visiting professor, an adjunct, or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, what's what book? What book are you working on now? I'm working on my third book. It's called Into the Shadows: Fire by Six. Um, okay. About 55,000 words into it, maybe 60,000, somewhere around there. And so really, it's a reunion of sorts between Michael Brennan and one of the characters in book one. And really, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a book about a Hezbollah plot to obtain a weapon of mass destruction from the North Koreans and to use it uh, inside of Israel. Um, you know, not some nuclear warhead or something like that, but a, a, a weapon of mass destruction. And so uh, I should have that wrapped up in about... Uh, I would say 30 to 45 days, and then, of course, that dreaded editing process. So I'll get I'll get at least three or four revisions from the editors. And the tentative date right now, uh, if you're interested or, or if your Absolutely, audience yeah. uh, is November 1st, 2019. November and 1st, 2019. We put that on the live yes, drop calendar. Yes, sir. It goes on so, the live drop calendar. That's when yeah. Fire by Six drops. I was hoping yeah. I was hoping you'd write a book about Lewis McDonald and the McDonald Group. They sound like an interesting... Yeah, well, I, 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 an interesting I did. crew, right? They yeah. all live in this port. This group of mercenaries all live in this port city, just kind of waiting for the next job. Just a, just a small, small group. I mean, I actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Lewis because uh, I had hoped to get that reaction from some of the readers, like you, and like, who the hell is this guy? I mean, is this is this for real? And so, you know, it, it, without spoiling it for everybody, I mean, he doesn't have the role that we hoped he might have, or 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 that might happen. Um, but I did that consciously, partly because of the way the story unfolded. I mean, my character, what the, what the story is going to be, you know, but, um, I wanted to leave that as a mystery. And so you might see Lewis McDonald, um, uh, down the road, but, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, they're hanging out. Um, I just, for some reason I picture him like Richard Burton and where Eagles dare those, you know, yeah. And, yeah, and, well, and Richard Harris, they're just hanging yeah. out there at some little pub, you know, yeah, with what sailors. A, what a great. That was, but you know, but I mean, as you know too, I mean, we have we have contractors who work for the CIA. You know, they're not career employees, and so you know, sometimes you got to hang around. Sometimes you're just waiting, you know, and um, and so I mean, 
obviously the British have the same type of, of relationship with similar contractors. Yeah. So. Has that always been the name for them? I guess we do have a little more time than I thought, but I guess is that always – I did want to really ask you about knock. you know, like if somebody's a knock, it's a non-official cover. I mean was that – it seems like that's kind of a new, a recent name or maybe I just heard of it recently because I always thought that there was – yeah, you know, there was executives for TWA or somebody worked for Sears mm-hmm. or, you know, there were mm-hmm. always these people that, you know, you hear about that. Oh, you know, my father said that he was, you know, working for a, I don't know, like, I don't know, a steel company or something. And then you find out that actually he worked somewhere else. Are, are these actually, is this actually like a, a program or are they government employees or are they strictly contractors or how is that, how has the knock evolved into what it is today from maybe the post? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, think, and again, I'm not a career CIA officer, but you know, I think the best way to answer that question is this knocks have already, I've always been around, you know, as far as I understand. And what's there's only one major difference between a non-official cover and an official cover operative. And that is an official cover operative who used to work for the Defense Clandestine Service, we call it Director of Operations now. Um, you know, they're working in an official government capacity. They're representing themselves as a member of the State Department or as a member of the military or as a member uh, of a trade negotiation. A non-official cover is somebody who, if they are compromised, um, does not have that affiliation with the U.S. government. And, and so we'll, you know, we'll just say, look, we don't know who this person is. I mean, that's the only difference. I mean, as far as I know, and again, I, have, I was not a CIA guy for 20 years, um, but, uh, you know, they both go through the same program. It's just that some officers are designated official cover and some are dedicated to non-official cover. And that's the only difference. One has government support, and government, not oversight, but... Um, um, you know, if something happens, they can they can turn to the U.S. government and say, "We we need to I need to get out of here." And that's the difference. Both go through the same training, um, but uh, you know, obviously, the skill sets you're looking for for one versus the other are probably going to be a little different. Probably a little bit different mm-hmm. um, because you know the primary role of, of a spy. You know, what a lot of people think. You know, spies go out and do all this stuff. You know, they're snake eaters. They go out at night. You know. What do spies really do, Mark? And I'm sure you, I'm sure you're aware of this. Is they recruit? They recruit people. That's really what most spies do. They're not really trained assassins. Um, they're not sneaking around trying to break into a, a building or a government facility to steal, you know, secret plans or something like that. They're going overseas and they're trying to convince someone inside China or someone inside Germany or someone inside France to spy for them. So, you know, if that relationship is built, you know, there, there's, a, there's a stage and a processing that, you know, I'm, I'm sure we don't have to go through. But the recruiting cycle, and ultimately the relationship is going to be built between you and that asset. And then what you're going to do is you're going to say, this is what I need from you. You're going to give him or her requirements. And they're going to do the dirty work. Mm-hmm. That's what spies do. And I'm sure there's some variations to that. And, and certainly since 9-11, um, a little bit maybe more emphasis on the paramilitary side because of the fight against terrorism, uh, groups like Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, and these others. Um, but they're primarily recruiters. It's just that the OC has, has that government, you know, the, you know they've got, they can show that government um, document where a knock, if you're compromised, you're, you're, you're in some trouble. You're going to jail or, or, or worse. Yeah. I guess the question, with the, the biggest question with a knock would be, what their lo- where their loyalty lives or what their actual motivation is 
Well, I mean, I think their loyalty and motivation, I mean, unless somebody can tell me otherwise, their loyalty and motivation is to the government. It's to serve their nation. You know, and that's kind of one of the things I try to show about Michael. Michael's a no-nonsense guy. You know, I try to show some, some skills and talents, but I think ultimately what Knox want to do is serve their country. But it's interesting um, It's interesting because you don't always see that character who essentially is a civilian with that sort of, you know, maybe patriotic sense of, sense of duty, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you make a wonderful point there because, you know, some people are, are, are motivated by um, excitement. You know, some people, you can, you, can, you can recruit somebody just because they think it's cool, because they, they have this mindset like it's an exciting lifestyle, adventure. So there are going to be some young men and women that, that are recruited into this business that, 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 that do it because it just sounds really interesting. It sounds fun. Mm-hmm. The motivation for Michael Brennan is this guy, this guy serves his country, and he does what his mission tells him to do, and he has this wide latitude you know, to figure out how to accomplish that mission. He's going to use a variety of skill sets to do it. But I think your point is, 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 is well taken, and that is things – a lot of spies have different motivations for serving. It's the same thing that we have for young men and women to go in the military. You know, your own service. Why did you go into the military? Well, I went into the military. My students asked me, why did you go into the military in, the, in, in 1990? Why did you commission? And you know what I told them? I wanted to fight the Russian horde. <laughs> I, I want to serve my country. Me too. I want to serve my country. I want to be the guy standing there for in Germany in case the Russians go. That was my motivation. Now, if you ask you know, one of my other buddies, they, their motivation was to, to learn a skill and get out. And, 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 and it's the same motivation for, for what drives somebody to get in the intel community. I think it varies. I don't think there's one size fits all. Uh, but Brennan is certainly a guy who serves. And um, – and wants to do what's best and what's right. And so sometimes the, those gray areas uh, get difficult to get through that. As, you know, speaking you know, of, speaking there was of, an issue with, in book one where he had to deal with that gray area and he, he ultimately figured out how to navigate through it. Yeah, that's an interesting, there's a whole field in that gray area to talk about. But speaking of gray area, <laughs> how would you compare? I mean, Cit- Citadel is very similar to, to West Point. Um, although you you were on the other team from, from the south, <laughs> you are, we still we still kind of have a little bit of like eh, yeah okay you know the civil war thing we'll let that go. Um, we'll let it go. But I guess we'll I guess uh, I, I guess how would you how would you compare maybe the attitudes or even motivations of this of the of the do you call it the core of cadets in the city? Core cadets. How, mm-hmm. how would you how would you compare how how has it evolved or how are they different or how are how are cadets different than than when you and I were in? Well, I think one of the primary differences between us and West Point is that if you go to West Point, you're serving. You know, you're going into the army. You know, you may go active, you may go reserve, so you're making that commitment. Now, from the Citadel, if you look at a, the average student, the core cadet student, most will not go in the Citadel. Only about 30 to 35% of every class that we have at the Citadel will go into the service. We're not talking about just the Army, but we're talking about the Navy, the Air Force, the Coast Guard. Um, so that is, I think, the primary difference between the two institutions. You know, um, We can argue or joke about which one is better academically or which one is harder. Um, both have their, 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 their strengths and weaknesses. But ultimately, the difference is, is the type of student that comes here. I mean, 
the vast majority do not intend to serve their country. So they're coming into an organization that is a little bit structured, um, you know, to their day. Um, but I would say that's the biggest difference between the two institutions. It's the, it's the desire to serve. And we just don't, we don't have a hundred percent of our student body wants to serve. It is. It's, um, but how, how would you compare, how would you guys compare the, maybe the, I don't know, the, the, the psyche or the state of mind of, of the students to when you were in? I mean, not comparing West Point to Citadel, but comparing Citadel before to Citadel now. Yeah, well, I mean, they're obviously distracted by lots of phones and social media. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I, I look back and I, and I go, okay, well, hell, I was here in 1986 to 1990. Are, are these kids that much different than me? I'm going to say no. I mean, there, there was a large group. I mean, um, even my own class, only about 40% of us went into the military. Um, so I don't think there's much of a difference between, um, you know, students 25 years ago and now in terms of what motivates them to be here. Some are here for the structure. Some are here for the family legacy. Some are here to want to serve. Um, we have a very large uh, South Carolina Alumni Association for the Citadel. So there's a lot of networking that goes on. So when these kids come in here, I don't think their motivations or desires um, or intentions are much different than when I was here. I think it's just, you know, they're distracted more obviously with the damn technology that they yeah. have. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say except for maybe about a 5%, 10% difference, you know, um, you still have a large group that want to go in the military, but the predominance of students here don't want to do it. Yeah. So I don't think it's significantly at all. So I'm going to take a little walk off into the weeds right now, and this doesn't necessarily have to be on, on the on the interview. We can take it off if you whatever want. you want to do, Mark. You, you but walk with me here. I just I just hit one off into the into the rough. But um, you know, I, I, Stanley McChrystal came out with a book recently about leadership, which is interesting. The, the ex generals always write about leadership, but the majors and lieutenant colonels write fiction. I don't really, I don't really, <laughs> I don't know how that. Or the lieutenants, in my case, right? We, we just yeah. write fiction stuff. So, um, but he wrote he wrote that he used to ha- he had a picture he had a he had a a picture of Robert E. Lee in his foyer in his house for the longest time, and um, you know times times change. You know, I mean, there are there are divisions. There's identity politics. There's kind of a revisiting of of the Civil War and, and what actually happened and what everyone was what people stood for and what they believed in and why they did it. I'm sure there's a variety of different reasons, but McChrystal, he, he's, his wife apparently said, you know, he was that, she goes, you know, that painting represents things that I don't necessarily think that you want to express to people when they come into our house. So, I mean, I went to West Point and we always studied General Lee. I mean, he was, he was, he was everywhere. He couldn't figure, they couldn't figure him out. You know, even, even Grant was just like, we just have to throw an immense amount of effort, money and, soldiers to try to um to try to defeat this man he was always respected as a you know a tactician as a a strategist and um i'm sure you can speak more to that but is there a difference in the citadel in the way they kind of i mean in new orleans they're pulling up you know beauregard statue and some of these other statues are being taken down how has the citadel kind of uh reacted in that in that fared in that environment well, I mean, I think, you know, there's always an emphasis on leadership here. I mean, that's the mission of the school. If you were actually look at the mission statement of the Citadel, um, our mission is to produce citizen leaders. It's not to produce military officers. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, each one of our students has to meet a curriculum of four years of leadership training. 
So they study some of the great leaders, whether those be, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee, you know, General Patton. They look at some of the traits um, that made them the great leaders that they were. Um, and so for us, um, you know, we're, 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 we're just focused on one thing, and that is to produce a, a young man or a woman who can be a leader in whatever industry that he or she finds themselves in. To do the right thing, to focus on ethics, morals, ask ourselves, is this the right thing to do? And so I'm not involved in that leadership, but it's a formal program. I mean, I'm, I'm focused more on the Intel classes, you know, from a professor, but we have dedicated uh, individuals that teach leadership. Um, and so, you know, when, when things happen, you know, when we have things like statues going up or down, depending on your political views, we'll talk about it. You know, we'll say, hey, what, what do you think? You know, but we'll talk about it in a civil way. And one of the things I do occasionally well, I'd say about once or twice a semester, I'll walk in, they'll never know when it happens, and I'll say, let's talk about this crime that occurred in South Carolina. Let's talk about this shooting. Let's talk about this guy who just killed eight African Americans. Let's talk about, you know, gun control or something. And really the reason why I do that is I'm not playing politics because I'm as independent as you're going to get. Um, I'm a straight shooter, and I will look at things from both sides, and that's what I try to teach my students. In order to be a good leader – you have to look at, the, at both sides of a problem and then just make a judgment. So we institutionalize that here at the Citadel. I mean, we do that. They have those classes. Professors are encouraged to discuss these things, not to try to sway or suggest one side is better than the other. You'll never, ever hear me say that in classroom. In fact, I love it because every semester they always ask me at the end, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? And I'm like, that's for me to know and for you to find out. I might not be any one of them. Um, but that's how we approach leadership. Um, it's a serious goal and a serious mission for us. And um, through that structured system, through looking at some of the great leaders, both men and women, both in the private sector, our business department and our intel department, you know, we have historians here that are looking at, you know, what made General Hayden a great intelligence officer or what makes him a great intelligence officer, you know? Let's look at William Dulles. Let's look at some of these, other, not William Dulles, um, Donovan. Let's look at Mr. Donovan, who created the OSS, and um, and so we can learn from them. But um, we try to stay out of the politics of, mm -hmm. of issues. We address what a leader would do. Mm -hmm. What should a leader think about when he or she is confronted with this type of situation? And um, so that's how we do it. I also remember at West Point, they never taught us about the – like I remember reading about – if you wanted to find out about what happened with General Custer – in the West, you had, mm -hmm. to, you had to look that shit up on your own. I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't teaching you, you know, the tactics of the American West. And they said, because it at the time it wasn't tactically or strategically, um, that, well, no, this was like in 1980s. They said, well, it, it does, it just doesn't provide any new information tactically or strategically. Right. But I was just wondering if you, but if you look at it through the lens of counterinsurgency, I was wondering, do they do they teach that at the Citadel? I mean, they teach the yeah we have yeah we have we have classes uh, in our political science department that that look at insurgencies, you know, and, and some of the ways that we counter that. That's mostly done with our political science department. You know, we're we're a new department here in the Intel program. We just officially became a department a year ago, or yeah, about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And um, but yeah, I mean, they they, they we do have uh, professors in the political science. One of them actually is a is a uh, Air Force. Um, reservist who's got some experience in Africa with counterinsurgency and supporting some of our special operators and some of the COCOM. So 
Yeah, we're teaching it. We're addressing it um, here. So. Well, okay. I don't mean to indict the Citadel or anything like that. I just, What's that? Just, I don't mean to indict the Citadel. It's just really. I don't think I've really. I don't think I've really met it. Maybe we have one or two people from the Citadel, but. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We, you know, it's like you know. I, I tell you, you know, I don't. I don't know if I should say this, but but the hell with it. I'll say it anyways. You know. I okay. Mean, I, <laughs> Go ahead. <I'm, laughs> if you were to talk to some of my buddies here, my colleagues here, they tell you the same thing. You know, I, I'm not one of these. Um, these delusional alumni that thinks, you know, we're the greatest things in sliced bread. Um, you know, we've got our issues and challenges like everybody else. But, you know, we're a good institution. We do a good job. You know, I think uh, we're, we're, we're becoming leaders in the intel education. Um, you know, we're, we've established some good relationships with the CIA already. Um, I just had, uh, you know, a lunch with uh, the former uh, director um, of the DO, um, uh, Mr. Vogel. And uh, we've got relationships with DIA um, and some other agencies, Pentagon. We do some projects with them. So, you know, what we want to focus in on, particularly me, um, is to have a world-class intelligence education so that when my students leave here, they can think. So if you want to hire a CITL student, what I want you to think about is, can this person think? They may not know everything about engineering or they may not know everything about the intel community, but can the, can the person think? And that's what we're trying to do. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do as an institution. I think we do a good job of it. You know, do we fall short like like any other institution? Sure. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do things pretty well. So. Well, that's yeah. I think it's wonderful. You're kind of encouraging people to kind of think and come up with an opinion. I remember. I remember. We used to have some classes where they would ask us for our opinion at West Point. And you just think like, oh my god, I don't really need. <laughs> oh, you don't have time for this. I'm carrying 22 credit hours. I don't have time for an opinion about something. Right. But fa- interestingly yeah. enough, do you know? Do you know? I, I think one of the CNN spokespeople for the FBI now is James Gagliano. I don't know, James okay. Gagliano. You've probably seen him. He's kind of bald glasses. Maybe. It's, not, it's not ringing a bell, but yeah, super yeah. eloquent. Anyway, the, the CNN CNN brings him in whenever they're talking about you know, some FBI related topics. And, uh, he was gifted. He, he was gifted with, with, with opinions and, and he's, and yeah. he still has them. And, um, I think oh. it's, I think it's wonderful. I mean, the way you're teaching and the way, I mean, even from your, your own background, it's, it, it, you, you seem to be the kind of person that wants to talk about what's going on right now. Even Michael, Michael Brennan is very much, we don't hear a lot about his past either. He's very much like, what's happening right now? How are we going to deal with this? How are we going to yeah. – wh- what do you think with yeah. the information that's provided right now? Well, so. you know, and it goes back to what we were talking about a while ago, Mark. You know, the problem is, is a lot of these kids, they don't know how to think. I mean, I, it's not even that I want an opinion. All I want is, how did you arrive at this conclusion? That's why I tell Absolutely. my – Absolutely, yeah. How the hell did you come up with, you know, that, that, it, that, that we should be – you know, putting in three carriers into the South China Sea just because, you know, the, the Chinese have, have ramped up some of their operations. What, what, why? You know, so it's an opinion, but you know, that's what we try to focus in on is let's gather the, da- the data and the evidence because, you know, like yourself, a successful Hollywood, uh, you know, actor, you've got to do your research before you come up with an assessment, before you conclude something, you know. I mean, opinions don't matter much to me. To me, what matters is, is how did you assess something? You know, from the time I was a tactical guy to the time I did some strategic to, to, to now writing, how do I assess this? Because if I can defend it, if I can look you in the eye and say, I came up with this conclusion, it may not always be right, but I can defend it based on evidence, that's what makes a good intel analyst. I guarantee you General Hayden would say the same thing. Oh, absolutely. As as- yeah. That's one, one of the things I enjoy about talking with people from the intelligence community like yourself is – 
you, what you don't hear are a lot beliefs aren't valued as much as truths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, you can't say how, you can't say the same thing with the rest of America, the United States, right? Yeah, now. yeah. And how we perceive those truths—that's another issue, you know. But look, I mean, you know, that's the thing, though. And and I and I know you know this. I know you know this, and I know your audience knows this. But look, in order to be successful in the Intel community, you got to be objective. Your your values guide you, but your personal views are checked at the door. The way you the way you go about the way you go forward, the way you make assessments, is to gather data. And, and analyze and defend it. And that's all we can ever do. And that, I guarantee, is what General Hayden will tell you to make a grid off. Because um, that's what you need. Yeah. Um, because when we're biased, we just F things up. We start, we don't, we don't look at, we don't look at what, what's really happening. You know, we, we, we just, we, we ignore the truth and we look at the gray where we can stretch and reach for it and say, ah, oh, that supports me or that supports what I'm trying to do. Um, and that's really what, what I'm doing as a professor. Um, and so, yeah, there's no nonsense kind of switch gears on you in my books. Um, it's designed to be a little bit of a mystery. That's why Michael Brennan is a little bit mysterious. Mm-hmm. Think about the past, but it's, it's just always the constant focus of what's he doing now and what the hell is going to happen? Because what I tell my students, too, is um, so they're always looking forward. They're not looking backwards. And that's something that, that I try to do in my books, but I also try to do with my students here at the Citadel. Look forward. The past can guide us, and we can learn from it. But if you don't understand how the world works right now and understand the decision cycle that your adversary or your enemy has, you're going to fail every time. That would be a good place to wrap it up. Thank you, Mark. Have a great day. Stay safe out there. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thanks, Mark. Bye.